There's a, uh, a great episode of the classic television show Seinfeld that I, uh, I really enjoy. It's called Festivus. Has anybody seen that particular episode, Festivus? Right? It's where George Costanza's father, uh, I think his name is Frank, has a made-up holiday around Christmas time. And Festivus has, instead of a Christmas tree, this aluminum pole. And Festivus has, instead of the exchange of gifts, the airing of grievances. And Festivus has, instead of hugs and well wishes, they have the feats of strength. And at one point in the episode, uh, George's father, Frank, who's a, a bit of a fiery personality, he says, now it's time for the airing of grievances, and I got a lot to say, people. That's how a preacher feels after four weeks of vacation. So I got a lot to say, people. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. That was a big buildup for such little, little payoff. I know. Uh, the 745 crowd this morning must have been asleep because my jokes went over like a lead balloon. The Kaleo students this morning at 745, Jeff, they were giving me a pity laugh. They, were, they really were, but you know what? I'll take a pity laugh. A pity laugh is better than no laugh at all. Pity laugh. Well, this morning, this morning we're actually going to embark on a, a bit of a new uh, adventure, a new season for us here at Emmanuel Anglican Church because we're going to start looking at uh, Peter's first letter sort of systematically over the next several weeks. I don't want to give you a time frame because then you would hold me to that time frame. Uh, I'd rather leave it a little bit open-ended. We're going to look at all of 1 Peter's letter starting this morning with just the first two verses. In the first two verses of, of this letter, he really establishes something that he unfolds over the course of five chapters. And so we're going to spend time together this morning thinking, looking at what Peter has to say about identity. Identity. Identity is all over the place in, in the news today, uh, whether we're talking about identity theft, uh, people stealing social security numbers, credit card numbers, and addresses, or we're talking about gender identity, or whatever we're talking about, this idea of identity is so incredibly important to our world, which I think is why it's all over the news. It's a really big thing to know who you are. The Who even had a song about it, right? Who are you? Hoo, 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 hoo. I like that you're singing along. That's good. This is a much different crowd. You guys are awake. Some of us, perhaps, uh, after college or maybe before college or maybe even in the middle of college, uh, decided to take a trip to backpack across Europe in order to find ourselves, right? Why? Because you have to know who you are. Who you are drives where you go and what you do. And if you don't know who you are, if I don't know who I am, I may find myself going nowhere and doing nothing. And perhaps even worse than that, if I don't know who I am, I may find myself going anywhere and doing anything. And I think it was G.K. Chesterton who once quipped, uh, if you don't stand for something, you will fall for anything or everything. If you don't know who you are, you will go and do all kinds of things that are actually detrimental to yourself and your true identity. 
Knowing who you are is absolutely crucial as a human being, and it is absolutely crucial as a believer in Jesus, as a follower in Jesus. Knowing who you are because of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ should lead us to where we go and what we do. And that is how Peter begins his letter. Peter begins this letter writing to uh, uh, believers in Jesus living in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, uh, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. All were sort of little provinces or geographic areas within what we now call Turkey. And these believers were either facing persecution, living in the midst of it, or they were getting ready to face persecution. It was on its way. And so Peter writes to these people to encourage them, to exhort them by first reminding them of who they are, their identity, and then through the rest of the letter, showing them in very practical ways the way that identity is lived out, even in the face of persecution even in the face of being marginalized. Historically, and and from the content of the letter itself, the persecution that these believers were either facing or getting ready to face was not yet life-threatening. Put the emphasis on yet, because it does become so. Now, persecution that's not yet life-threatening does not make it any less real. It does not make it any less painful. But it seems as though historically and from the context of this letter that the persecution was primarily expressed through different forms of social marginalization. Basically, Christians, because of what they believed and how they lived, were being pushed to the fringes of society, treated as oddballs and weirdos. With this marginalization, what we could probably call social ostracism, most certainly came slander, name-calling, gossip, lies, rumors, innuendo, perhaps even some level of economic prejudice with the sale, of purchase of, uh, the sale and purchase of goods and services restricted because of those folks' belief in Jesus. Does that sound familiar to anyone? While this persecution was akin to a low-grade fever in the human body, a low-grade fever is not life-threatening, but it lets you know something's not right, right? It can and does point towards and threaten worse persecution to come. So what, what were these believers to do? How were they to cope? How were they to respond? How were they to live in the face of cultural and societal pressure to either capitulate, to conform, or to run away? What were they to do? Well, Peter writes his letter, and he begins by reminding them of who they are, reminding them of what their identity is. They are elect exiles. They are chosen by God. And because they are chosen by God, they are foreigners in the land in which they live. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, 
May grace and peace be multiplied to you. The first thing we notice about the identity of these people that Peter is addressing is that they are elect. The word elect um, simply means to choose. One who wins an election is one who was chosen. And here, as in several places in Scripture, the, the concept of election refers to God's choosing of a person or a people to be His. And so the first point of identity of believers in Jesus is that they are chosen by God. This is reflected, among other places, in Jesus' words, we heard this morning from John chapter 15. He said, I chose you out of the world. So, elect. Now, as we consider the identity of believers in Jesus, and as we consider this concept of election or elect, we have to recognize two things. First, Within the wider church, the idea that God elects or chooses those who respond to him with faith and thus receive salvation is a hot-button issue. Right? No, <laughs> Thanks, Dave. <laughs> People who believe in Jesus have, and they can, and they do disagree on what exactly election means especially as it relates to the free will of a person. That's the first thing we have to recognize. We admit it. That's fine. We don't all agree on it. I don't know exactly what it means. But that's related to the second. Just because we, can't, just because we don't necessarily agree on what it means does not give us the right to pretend it doesn't exist. Because while we can't say everything in a single sermon... We must deal with the concept of election simply because it is entirely biblical. That is to say, it is found in Scripture and in more than one place. In Genesis chapter 12, when God calls Abram to be his man and to create a nation, that's election. He chose Abram out of how many people? When God chose Jacob over his brother Esau, that too is election. Romans chapter 8 is election. 1 Peter chapter 1 is election. And so we have to seek to understand it. Now, as Anglicans, we are not adrift in a sea of unknowing. First, we have Scripture. So we want Scripture to help us understand what's it mean. Secondly, to understand election means, as Anglicans, we fall back on those 39 articles of religion, these, uh, the statement of faith that came out of the English Reformation. Now, I doubt very highly that many of you have a copy of the 39 Articles of Religion on you right now in the seats. Anyone? Mine's back there. Just me. Okay, good. Cliff just showed me the secret. Look it up on your phone later. There's free online editions. <laughs> two of those articles, two of the 39, Articles 10 and 17, deal with the doctrines of free will and predestination and election, respectively, and they help us understand... What do we mean? Read those two articles. Let me summarize them together for you. As a result of the power of sin, in our natural state, we humans are unable to respond to the gospel without God first acting on our behalf, which he does through election. 
Article 10 states that the condition of man after the fall of Adam is such that he cannot turn and prepare himself by his own natural strength and good works to faith and calling upon God. In our natural selves, German reformer Martin Luther said, the heart is curved in upon itself. So everything the heart in this curved in state does and chooses ultimately is it comes back to what we want and desire. In our sinful states, our natural states, we are so curved in upon ourselves that we do not desire what we ought to desire. More to the point, we cannot desire what we ought to desire. We ought to desire God. We ought to desire the things of God. But because of our natural sinful selves, we don't because we can't. Ephesians chapter 2, there St. Paul sort of summarizes that same thing by saying we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And that which is dead cannot choose life. The heart is captive, cur curved in. As a result of our sin, what we need is God to first work in us before we can respond to him with faith as we ought. Before we can desire what we really should desire, we need God to fix us. That's the point of Article 10. And that's at the heart of election. That's at the heart of the gospel. That the dead must first be made alive. The idea of regeneration, the idea of being born again. It seems to be what Jesus' point in his conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3 is all about. The fact that we need God to first work in us so that we then can respond with faith. Because in our natural selves, in our natural strength, we cannot turn and prepare ourselves for God. Can I tell you that it is really, really good news that salvation is dependent solely upon what God has done first on our behalf? Because I don't know about the rest of you. I, I know more than I probably want, but I know myself well enough to know that if salvation was left to me, I would fail every third minute. And I'm being generous to myself. So God grants us grace in that same article. It talks about uh, before we can have faith, God's grace prevents it. It goes before us so that we can respond. And God grants us this grace, grace even before our faith, so that we can respond with faith, so that we can come to Jesus. This regenerative work of the Holy Spirit is making alive the hearts of sinful dead people so they can respond with faith is done according to God's choosing, His election. Article 17 refers to this as the predestination to life. It's based on God's decision that he made even before he created the world so that persons are chosen by God for redemption in Jesus, which is for God's glory. The thing about election, I think, that, that sometimes bothers us is that we think that it makes some sort of club, and we worry about the people on the outside but that's not, in a sense, that's not for us to worry about. We have to trust that God made his, makes his decision based upon and in ways that are perfectly in alignment with his character. His character is that of righteousness, of, of goodness, of love, of mercy. And the other side of that is, because we don't know why God makes the decision he makes, we still have the responsibility 
in obedience to Jesus to preach the gospel, to be salt and light. So the doctrine of election actually is for our good. It is a wholesome and comforting doctrine because it puts the emphasis on what God does for salvation, recognizing that in our natural sinful selves, we're messes. I can't even live up to my own standard of righteousness. I dare say you can't live up to your own standard of righteousness either, much less a holy and righteous God whose whose glory will melt our faces if we stand before him without Jesus standing between us. Bishop John Rogers, in his commentary on the articles, and specifically about 10 and 17, points out that in the gift of salvation, God is sovereign and we are utterly dependent upon him. And that's what Peter reveals here. Utterly dependent upon the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Utterly dependent upon what he does for us. Our identity is bound so much up, not in what we do or haven't done, but in what God has done. Elect. God the Father, Peter says, chose those who are found in Jesus in a way completely consistent with his eternal plan and purpose when he does it according to his foreknowledge. The Father takes the initiative to make sons and daughters, drawing people into covenant relationship with himself through Jesus. Peter tells us that the the Holy Spirit is the agent that makes God's election operational. The Holy Spirit sets people apart through regeneration and then he indwells the believer to continue this process of being made holy or set apart sanctification. The Spirit works in the heart of a believer to stir up faith, to convict of sin, to lead into repentance, to transform believers into the image of Jesus, the Son, and the Son is the one in whom believers trust and have life as his merits of a sinful life and his merit of crucifixion and resurrection are applied to those who are elect, to those who respond with faith so that they are adopted into the Father's family, elected to salvation for obedience to Jesus, and that is really good news. Because as these people uh, in in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Bithynia, as they stand in the face of persecution, they are able to say to themselves, to one another, and to those around them, I am not who you say I am. I am who the Father says I am because he has done it. And that's pretty important. Knowing who you are because of what God has done is really important in determining where you go and what you do. So now we're not allowed to just live the way we think we ought to live. We're not allowed now just to uh, give in to the winds and the whims of society. Now we're not allowed to fit in just so we can get along. Because now, because of God's election, we are exiles. The thing that makes a person an exile, even in the land of their birth, is God's election. Peter tells these folks they are chosen of God, they're elect. And this is what serves to set them apart from the world. And this is the other part of that identity that Peter reveals. It is precisely because these believers are elect that they are exiles in the world. In the New Testament, the the word that we see in the English Standard Version translated as exile, you may also see it translated as foreigner or stranger. Maybe in some of the older English translations, you'll see it as pilgrim. 
That word only occurs three times in the New Testament. Twice in 1 Peter and another time in the book of Hebrews. Each time it is used to describe the relationship between faithful men and women and the unbelieving society in the world in which they live. So for believers in Jesus, they are strangers in a strange land. They are exiles or foreigners in this world because this world, as it currently exists, is not their true home. Because they're elect, they've become this peculiar people created by God, a a people for his own possession. They've entered into this covenant relationship with God the Father through Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, God chose Abraham and his descendants to be his people, to be his peculiar people. This election and formation was formally ratified in a covenant ceremony recorded in Exodus 24. Jot that down. Look it up later. And there, God's elect people, having come through the Exodus, have received the law at the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses has read the law to them. God's people respond by saying, all this you have said we will do. They pledged their obedience, and then Moses sprinkled them with blood. Israel was to be a peculiar people, a people of God's own possession for the purpose of blessing other nations. As a peculiar people, they were supposed to be different than those around them. They were not supposed to share in the same values, customs, and beliefs of the world. And so in using language like dispersion, and in using language like sprinkling with blood, Peter wants these believers in Asia Minor, Peter wants us to see their calling to be much like Israel's to not be quite at home in this world as everybody else, to be exiles, to be strangers, to be different, and to be a blessing. Elect believers are outsiders. We ought not have the same values and customs and morals as uh, the world around us. We ought to be different because we are different. In Jesus, our priorities, our our fundamental first loyalties are different because we belong ultimately to a different kingdom and are ruled ultimately by a different king. And so for us, warning flags ought to go up when we see the church cozy up to worldly powers and principalities or share worldly values and customs. Warning flags ought to go up when following Jesus is conflated with politics and when church leaders are seen whispering into the ears of political candidates, remember us when you come into your kingdom. Because we are exiles, we are strangers, we are foreigners, even in the land of our birth. And that is the way it's supposed to be. Believers in Jesus Jesus are different than the world because of their identity. They are elect, chosen by God, set apart, and made exiles. Because of these differences, believers in Jesus ought to expect to be viewed with suspicion and treated differently, perhaps even poorly by the society and the world in which they live. Remember again what Jesus said in our gospel reading, if you were of the world, the world would love you. But because you're not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. We need to be comfortable. We need to be comfortable with being elect exiles. 
We got to be. You cannot look at the news, read the newspaper, shoot. You can't even go on Facebook and scroll through people's nonsense they post and not recognize that at some level in America today, quickly coming is social marginalization, slander, and gossip. You can't. We have to become comfortable with being elect exiles, with being on the margins. But what are we to do? What is this identity that God has given us? How is it to be lived out? Wouldn't it be easier just to retreat and seclude ourselves in some sort of enclave? I'm sure there's some folks here in this, in, in this room this morning that have a, a bit of property somewhere perhaps in rural Alabama where we could build an Emmanuel Anglican enclave and just become like that village in M. Night Shyamalan's uh, movie, Right? Well, so wouldn't it be easier just to recruit or to retreat and seclude ourselves? Well, maybe it would be easier just to, to uh, compromise just a little bit. Maybe not hold on to this Jesus guy and obedience to him quite so strongly. Well, those are two things, if you read the rest of the letter, which we will over the next few weeks, those are two things that Peter will not allow for. Neither compromise with the world nor retreat from the world are options for the elect exiles of Jesus. Near the end of this letter in chapter 5, I believe it's verse 12, Peter writes, this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. And so despite the, the pressures of the world upon believers to, to mitigate their strain, just don't be quite so weird. There can be no compromise because even a little compromise is capitulation. But we can't retreat either. To retreat would be to ignore the, the, the end of Matthew's gospel where Jesus gives what we call the Great Commission, go into the world and make disciples. To retreat, to create that southern Alabama enclave would be to, to, to ignore the call to be salt and to be light. As Peter unfolds his letter, he calls elect exiles to what Karen Jobes refers to as differentiated engagement. Differentiated engagement, where believers in Jesus are to engage with the culture in which they live, preaching the gospel, all while maintaining the differences, maintaining their identity as elect exiles for the blessing of the nation. Differentiated engagement, I believe, is what God called the Jews in exile in Babylon to in Jeremiah chapter 29, where he says, pray for the city. Work for the good of the city in which you find yourselves, but don't forsake God. This is the reason differentiated engagement is the reason why we pray to Almighty God, the creator of all that is, for our nation. As we prayed this morning, we're quickly approaching 4th of July. We prayed this morning for our nation to Almighty God, not because we're indifferent, but because we recognize we belong to the first kingdom, but we're citizens in this little kingdom, and we need to pray for this little kingdom to the first kingdom, to the first king. Differentiated engagement is why tomorrow it is perfectly good and right for us to blow things up, to sing patriotic songs, to celebrate our independence. But it is also why today in this room we sing praises to God Almighty. Differentiated engagement is the fact that we are to be salt and light, engaging the world in just the way that Jesus did. 
being who we are, elect, being what we are, exiles. That's our identity. By knowing who we are, we can know where we're going. We can know what, we're art, what we are to do. As elect exiles, we are to hold firm to the gospel of Jesus. We are to engage with the unbelieving world with the gospel, being salt and being light. As elect exiles, we ought to expect that, that things may not be easy or even go well for us. We should expect to be treated by the world just as our master was treated by the world. And in the end, as the first sermon of this particular series, maybe it's good for us simply to say that Peter's letter here revolves around this, this single issue. You are elect exiles in the world. Live like it. Hold firm to God's grace in Jesus, come what may. That was Peter's message to his first audience. I think that's his message to us. And I've said this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Holy and gracious.